Welcome to The Whole Truth, everybody. This episode really should be called Kurt Makes a Friend. You made a friend. It was pretty exciting. You're enjoying that, huh? Yeah. It's, well, it's my only one, so it's it's a Well, note. listen, I'm your friend too, Kurt. It's actually, I was thinking about it. It's kind of a little bit of a ripoff. Have you seen Conan O'Brien's podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend? We're ripping that off a little bit on this. Oh, I like that. Well, the friends are going to come up in the Costanza Corner too, so that's oh, a good wow. tease. Oh, wow. There's, there's a tease. Um, we are really excited today. Our guest is Dr. Daniel Crosby. He is a psychologist, a behavioral finance expert. He's from Brinker Capital, but he does all kinds of different things. He's a PhD in clinical psychology. You know, he's got a lot of great books, which we'll get into. His TED Talks are absolutely excellent. They're awesome. Definitely yeah. check that out. But the real reason we had him on is not only do we think he's a great guest, but we really think that this whole topic of behavioral finance is really important. It really is. And I also tell in the episode the story of how we got connected with him, which is actually through his dad and a puzzle. Nice. So be, be sure to stay tuned for that. And there's a couple of key points about what he is really doing in behavioral finance. So it has real life applications. We talk about personal benchmark, which is a big thing. I know a lot of financial professionals talk about with their clients and also how to just get better outcomes, how to kind of close that behavior gap of what the markets provide and what clients end up experiencing. So we'll do the interview and then we'll conclude with the Costanza Corner. As always, remember, you can reach out to us at thewholetruth at touchstonefunds.com. Send us question, send us criticism, send us client touch ideas, whatever you want. We love to hear you from you guys there. And you can check us out at touchstonefunds.com forward slash thewholetruth if you want to check out previous podcast episodes. Without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Daniel Crosby. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. From the Bay Area, California, I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Kurt Dupuis. So we're really excited to have our guest on the show today. He is a PhD in psychology. He's the chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital. He's the host of his own podcast called Standard Deviations. He's written at least, you can confirm this later for me, four books on psychology and investing. U.S. News has named his book, The Laws of Wealth, as one of the 15 best finance books for financial professionals. Investment News has named him the prestigious 40 under 40. And he also happens to share the surname of the best hockey player in the world, Sidney Crosby. So needless to say, we are very excited to welcome the show today, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Welcome, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully knowing nothing about hockey won't disqualify me from being a good guest. This is a hockey light podcast, so I, th I think you'll, I think you'll be okay. Despite me being on it, who loves hockey and has had an internship with the New Jersey Devils. But my favorite title, by the way, going back to your books, is your first one, You're Not That Great. I think that's amazing, actually, as a title for a book. <laughs> it turns out uh, that, one, that one didn't sell well. It's hard to give as a gift, but uh, I'm pr proud of it nonetheless. <laughs> it's probably worth mentioning how Daniel and I cross paths. His father is a financial professional in Alabama where we had scheduled a meeting. And when I knocked on the, on his office door, his back was turned to the door and he was sitting at a table doing something. He waved me in and I came around the corner to see him putting together a puzzle right there in the middle of, of his office, the middle of the day. He never looked up from the puzzle. He invited me to sit down. And I did. And we sat there for 45 minutes doing a puzzle 
and chewing the cud and just just talking and hanging out. Does, does that sound about right? Oh my gosh, I'm laughing so hard. My dad is a legend. Yeah, I didn't inherit his love of of puzzles, but that's what he does. He he does puzzles all day with his clients. He he really does. And maybe we could break this down later. There's got to be a a nice little psychological angle to it that kind of disarms people, gets them thinking and multitasking, and and maybe not focusing on stuff they should not be focusing on. But I it was probably the most unique meeting I've ever had. Uh, and I've I've since got him puzzles. We do puzzles when I when I go visit him now. It's great. I, lo- I love it. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for feeding his addiction. So yes, he he really loves puzzles. And I think you're exactly right. There is some method to the madness, right? Of getting people disarmed, getting them um, feeling comfortable and getting them to a place where they can refocus on their goals and their purpose uh, and not be so wound up perhaps about whatever's going on in the news of the market. So uh, it is there. there is some method to the madness, I, I think for sure. Yeah. Well, so I, I had a, a long intro for all of the things that I have seen online and reading about you that you have done. But what is your job? It seems like you've got a hundred of them. I mean, how do you just like having a lot of bosses, or are you just your own boss? Well, I just have I just have one boss, but I do, I have a lot of jobs, but just one boss, and that's kind of how that's kind of how I like it. So uh, officially, I'm in charge of training tools and technology around behavioral finance. So. Uh, the vision that we're working with at Brinker Capital, we we wanted to take behavioral finance out of the ivory tower and really put it on advisors' desks and, and put it in you know in a in a client's lap because there's been all this really cool research that's been done around social science as it applies to investment decision making, but a lot of it's pretty esoteric. A lot of it is kind of out there. Uh, it's not making its way uh, certainly to individuals and and even in many cases. It's not making its way to the likes of folks like my dad, who are, you know, uh, financial advisors who are helping these these everyday people. So that's really what I try and do through through my writing, through my speaking and through the development of of different assessments and technologies. Try to make behavioral finance applied and try to use it to improve investor outcomes. Yeah, and that's that's probably a good you know place to start. Let's back up. What is behavioral finance? Yeah. So great question. Uh, Behavioral finance is just finance that accounts for the messiness of human behavior. Like if you look at traditional financial and econometric models, they assume that people always make decisions that are in their best, uh, that are in their best interest. They refer to people as utility maximizers. So people are going to always do the thing that gets them the most benefit. And, you know, as anyone who's lived very long can attest, that's not true of you or I, and it's not true of the people we uh, sit next to at the DMV either. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is sort of the studies behavioral finances. How do people make uh, financial and economic decisions under conditions of, of emotional strain, under conditions of uncertainty, uh, and in an imperfect world? So, uh, you know, I, I like to think of it as, as finance for that's that's a little messier than than the models, but a little bit more truthful to to how things really are. I used to work with a portfolio manager who was highly critical of modern portfolio theory because the first one of the first tenets of that is that investors are rational, and I, I'm sure you've seen plenty of evidence that that's not really the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you if you even look at 
if you even look at, you know, assumptions that are made about markets, you know, we, we hear things from efficient market theorists like, uh, you know, uh, asset prices always reflect all available information. Well, that's kind of true. You know, asset prices reflect all available information as that information is viewed through the uh, cloudy lenses of that, that each of us possess, right? All of that information is filtered through a lifetime of bias and experience and, uh, and, you know, none of us sort of apprehends the world the way that it truly is. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a big difference between sort of these impartial econs, that's how they're referred to in the literature, econs, or homo economicus, this perfectly rational economic person, and then the way that you and I do dumb things with our money. So that's, uh, that's where I live in that messy middle. So when you're talking to financial professionals, so we talked about what behavioral finance is and why it's important, but when you're in front of the, the finance, we got to call them financial professionals now, what's your message to them? You know, why is this important for them to, to know or consider? Well, it's important for them because it's really sort of the last, it's really sort of the last bastion of, of both what we'll call sort of financial professionals on the advice giving side as well as financial professionals on the asset management side. I mean, if you just look at the advice side, there were there have been a couple of eras, right, of advice provision. So for a long time, we were the gatekeepers. Like you couldn't make a trade without Wall Street. And so you had to come to my office because I had to do the trade for you. Well, technology disintermediates that. And so now you can do it for free or, you know, in your underwear. So now we say, okay, well, you don't need me, you know, you don't need me to make the trade, but now you need me to pick good funds for you, or now you need me to manage your money. And so what we're finding though is what is, what is enduring is that people who get financial advice, people who work with financial professionals tend to do much better than those who don't, but it's not necessarily because they got consistently put in the hottest funds it's because they, they were saved from a handful of poor decisions over an investment lifetime, right? They kept them from making that greedy decision, that fearful decision, that, that uh, you know, from capitulating a couple of months ago when it felt like the world was going to end. And you add up two or three of those decisions over an investment lifetime, and if you can get someone to help you stay out of your own way, it's enormously, enormously powerful so all the research suggests that people who work with financial professionals do uh, 2 to 3% better per year, which in aggregate ends up being about two to three times as much uh, in you know, total wealth over a lifetime. And they're more prepared, they're happier, they have greater peace of mind. So what I tell you know, financial professionals is that it's time to start telling a new story about the value that we add. Because the value that we add is tremendous. It's just not the value that most people think we add. So I try and help them to tell a different story. And that's the behavior gap, right? That's, that's the definition of the behavior gap. That's what we're talking about, what's, what we're solving for. Right. So the behavior gap is this, this, chasm, this chasm between market returns. Um, you know, if you had sort of just taken the ride and the actual returns that, that accrue to, to you and I, uh, and there, there is a pretty sizable gap, like if we look, and the thing is, that gap widens in periods of great volatility. I know that looking back over the last few months, we're going to see that there was a huge gap. 
because the you know the the more volatile the market, the the bigger the gap tends to be, and consequently the more value you get from your advisor, right, or from your financial professional that you're working with. We find this again and again that real talk. There's years where a financial professional may not add a ton of value. It may just be one one and a half percent, but there's years where they're adding five, six, seven percent. And I think that we're in one of those times right now where financial professionals are, are earning their, their uh, fee and, and a whole lot more. So why were you attracted to this? I know you did not, you know, you got a father who's a financial professional, but you didn't start down this road. So intellectually, what attracted you to this? And then how did you end up, you know, in the industry? Because I know you didn't start there. Yeah. So my, my PhD is in clinical psychology. So I went to school, you know, I got, I got a doctoral degree to become a therapist effectively. And about uh, halfway through my doctoral degree, I just really hated it. Like I was just getting sick of the work of the clinical work. Uh, and it's so important. Like mental health care workers are so important and I wish I could have been better suited for it, but I wasn't. It's a hard job. Yeah, it's a super hard job. And it was just taking a toll on me. And I said, look, I love psychology. I love thinking about why people do the things that they do, but I want to do it in a non-medical setting. And so my dad, I'm like, whatever, 25 years old at the time. And my dad says to me, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of psychology in what I do. You should see if there's any applications to the market. Now, my dad at the time could not have told you what behavioral finance was. Uh, and, and I thought there's psychology in what you do. Like you're a numbers guy, like you're an analytics guy, like where's the psychology in what you do. But sure enough, when I started looking into it, there was a ton there. And so my first job out of my PhD was actually with a bank uh, doing pre-employment, pre-employment assessments of bankers. So I would give bankers um, IQ tests, personality tests, things like that to see if they were a fit for the bank And what I found there is I discovered within the bank behavioral economics, behavioral finance. And I said, oh my gosh, like this is, this is everything I've ever been looking for. It allows me to think deeply about why people do the things they do. There's a constant daily tick by tick, minute by minute barometer of how people are feeling uh, in the form of the various indices. Because, you know, the other trouble with traditional psychology is it's a little hazy. Like you don't know. you basically don't know anything your client's not telling you or that you're not observing. So the market tells you at any given second just how it's feeling. So I love that, that it was a data-rich environment. And I love that I could, you know, sleep well at night because no one ever died from, you know, behavioral finance questions. So that was, uh, it was really great data, really interesting work. And it was, a, it was sort of a load off mentally as well. So it I really found the perfect spot. I have noticed that some, I would say very few financial professionals have built client-centric benchmarks or kind of custom benchmarks that are more pertinent to long-term goals and not what the S&P is doing. So you, you wrote a book on this, The Personal Benchmark. So kind of a twofold question. Why is it so hard for financial professionals to develop these personal benchmarks for their clients, but maybe more importantly, why is it difficult for them to implement them with their clients? I think we want to have it both ways as an industry. When the market's underperforming or when we're, you know, when our 
uh, allocations for our clients are underperforming the S&P, say. We want to say, oh, hey, hey, wait a minute. Keep your eyes on the prize. Be a goals-based investor. Think about what matters. You know, goals-based investing, personal benchmarking. But then I often see at the same, you know, at the same turn, when we have a good year or when our allocation has outperformed the S&P, we want to be able to go to that person and go, ha ha, look what I did for you. The S&P got 5% and I got you 12%. Look at me making you money. And so you have to, you have to play both sides of that. And it's difficult. And I find this again and again, this is one of the hardest reasons, uh, one of the hardest things about embracing this goals-based philosophy is that you have to give it up when it's beneficial to you. Because if it doesn't matter what the S&P is doing, it doesn't matter what the S&P is doing when you're beating the S&P either. And that's not, a, that's not a, an easy conversation for anyone to have. But there's so much behavioral power in goals-based investing. One of the things you find about behavioral finance is that the interventions are not always dramatic, but they're often very powerful. And so something like naming buckets of money, you know, naming this the Daniels College Fund and this is the Daniels Dream Retirement Fund and whatever, that increases people's propensity to save dramatically. Uh, it reduces their uh, tendency to go to cash, like to liquidate by two thirds just by naming these portfolios, right? And so it's the simplest thing in the world, but what it does is it regrounds them in their goals because people watch the market like it's a video game or something, like it's disconnected from real life. And when you can bring it back, people start to reconnect and make decisions that are better for their life uh, when it gets remoored to what matters to them. So that's what I think we got to do. It's not hard. It's easy as can be. But the truth is, uh, the concept in psychology is called mental accounting. And it's that people tend to spend and save money differently depending on how it's labeled. Like if people get a paycheck, they tend to save it. If people get a bonus, if it's framed as a bonus, they tend to spend it. And you saw this with the Bush and Obama administrations during the Great Recession, I, I forget which, you know, luckily we won't get political because I can't remember who called it the right thing and who called it the wrong thing. But one of them called it, a, you know, a rebate and one of them called it a bonus. And that's you, you spend a rebate and a bonus in totally different ways. And they've even done research on criminals that finds that people who have like a day job and then like a night illegal night hustle, they will take their day job and they'll like give it to charity, they'll tithe on it, you know, they'll buy groceries with it. And then with the night hustle, like all bets are off. It's just, you know, spend it however you want. And so the way we talk about these things matters and it seems simple, but it's really powerful. I never knew that. That's a great example. That is. It reminds me of my father, like when my father gets gambling winnings, he's not a huge gambler, but he lives out in Reno. And so when he does it, you know, has a good night at the blackjack table, it's free money. It's house money. I could, you know, yet it's the same dollar as any, anything else he has. I'm curious, you know, we're going to transition to some of your, your Ted talks concepts, but before we go there, I want to follow up on the prior question. Have you worked with your dad on some of these things? Like as you began to come into our industry, how is, did you work with him? How did, how, cause he, he was, he was a test case for you, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. My dad and I talk all the time. He's sort of my best career counselor. 
And he's very receptive to these things. And you know what's interesting about people like my dad? My dad actually got his job on the day I was born. Okay, so my dad got his now job on the day I was born. So he's been in the business for 40 years. And so he knew a lot of these things intuitively, right? Like he knows that when your client comes in frantic, you take them over and you do a puzzle with them. You know, he knows some of these things sort of intuitively, but maybe he couldn't put the language behind it or didn't have the numbers to back it up. So I think a lot of good financial professionals who have made it this far always in already intuit some of these things and then for me it's just about giving them some sort of intellectual buttressing to give them some you know some numbers to go with their intuitions but yeah my dad's uh my dad's a natural at applying some of these things and hopefully i've been able to help him some a bit to formalize that process and boy was he a proud papa to to give me a copy of one of your books. So I, I apologize in advance that I didn't pay for it, but it's it's been a it's been a fun read. And he's he's actually promised to be more. So maybe you should talk about him about your marketing strategy there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. If you if your dad's not a fan of your books, who is? That's fantastic. All right, let's let's transition to some of the TED Talk stuff. Although we'll bounce around because we, like I said, we were having fun looking at all your content. But one of the things I noticed in a common thread, I saw it a couple times, was was how being weird is a good thing. You know, this came up a few different times. Talk about that. Yeah. So one of the things that I think we don't embrace sufficiently is you know, kind of flying our freak flag a bit and being just like embracing our weirdness a bit. And, uh, you know, one of the things is that it's a bit of a power move. You know, it's a bit of a power move. So there's really interesting research that shows that the people who are most successful in organizations are like 10% weird. <laughs> like you don't want to be the person that's off in the corner, you know, <laughs> like and, and everyone's talking about them. But if you're the person that has like a slightly edgy haircut or the person who has a slightly edgy look or a beard or you know, wears the pink shirt, whatever it is, right? Just people really like that because they see it as a form of power. So you want a level of conformity, right? Like you want to fit in enough that you're not ostracized from the group, but you want to be different enough that you stand out. And I think people don't, I think people don't embrace that. And you know, in markets, markets, forget about it. Markets are all about being weird. I mean, if you want to be a great investor, it's a total exercise in contrarianism and loneliness and divergent thinking. So, I mean, I could go on all day about how that's the case. But just elsewhere in life, I think people are so hungry to conform uh, that you kind of get lost in the shuffle. And so having an opinion, making a statement, being 10% weird it is powerful. There's also something, sort of a related concept called the, the pratfall effect. So the, the original research on the pratfall effect was, was done with politicians and they were like, you know, pretend politicians. So they had three conditions for these politicians. One was just a bumbling idiot. Like they're going to go give a speech, right? So one is just an idiot, just falling all over himself. Nobody likes that guy. The other one is, you know, smooth as can be, goes up there, polished delivery, nails every line, totally rehearsed, kills it. They, people like him, but not a ton. 
And then the third politician goes up there, trips a little bit walking up the stairs, spills a little bit of coffee on his shirt, makes a joke about it, and then delivers a competent speech. That's the person that the people like. The wow. per, you people like people who are competent but human. And so weirdness has a humanizing effect on us. It doesn't mean you can be a joke or a clown, but it just means if you're competent at your job, don't be scared to let you know your individuality show a little bit because that's going to endear you to people in a big way. There was, I saw in an interview when you were talking about this, there was um, a line that I think a friend told you about growing up, niches make riches. I, I like that. Another concept that I know I run into all the time is the idea of volatility, meaning your dollar value volatility or your market volatility as a proxy for risk. I've often had conversations with with clients about trying to reframe that with limited success. But what, from your work, what's a better framework and, and how can we better describe how that's not what people should be focusing on when it comes to risk? Yeah. So uh, it's not nothing, but it's just not the most important thing. And in fact, the biggest thing about volatility risk is that it can induce behavioral risk. So across every reputable study, behavioral risk, like the risk that you will blow yourself up through your own poor decisions, that's the biggest risk of all. So volatility risk becomes risky because some people say, hey, when my portfolio is down 20% or something, I can't take it anymore. And then the behavioral risk enters in. So I think we have to do a better job of educating people to say, you know, if, if we look at volatility, the average drawdown of the market in any given year over the past 35 years is 14%. So we get, we get a correction on average as regularly as Christmas, right? Like as regularly as your birthday, you get a correction. And yet every time we get a 10% or greater drawdown, they have a markets in turmoil special like it's never happened before in the history of humankind. It's crazy. Like, so we have to educate clients that on average, you're going to get this uh, every year. Like every year, you're going to have to take some tums because it's going to suck and you're going to be hurt when you look at your portfolio. About every five or six years, you're going to really have heartburn because it's going to be down. We're going to be in a full-blown bear market. But over that time, the market's returned about 10% a year, despite the fact that we've had a bear market every five years and a, and a 10% or greater down, uh, 10% or greater drawdown every single year. So um, we have to help people understand that volatility is the norm and not the exception, and we have to under, help them understand that the the biggest threat to their long term wealth creation is not a dip in the market because it's coming. Like if you're starting to invest, you're going to live through eight bear markets and, you know, 50 drawdowns, right? You're going you're gonna to just live through it. There's going to be tons of them. So just take that for granted. Know that the biggest risk to your portfolio is you and not the market. Yeah. I've also seen you comment, which is spot on about how volatility is incorrect. Like you take something like standard deviation, you get penalized when your stock goes from 10 to $30 and who feels, you know, that counts as volatility, but, but who really cares about that? But I'm curious, you know, one of the other th comments you made in terms of volatility was the idea that everyone likes to smooth the ride, but that doesn't 
really matter, does it? Well, smoothing the ride, again, you know, to kind of beat this horse, the smoothing a ride matters if it matters to you. Like the best investment is the, the ride that you can take. Like if you want to just talk about the best investment outcomes, it's not a very smooth ride. Like if you're trying to like maximize it, your returns, I promise you the ride will not be smooth. But I talk about anxiety adjusted returns. Uh, the mm. best returns, the best returns for you, are the returns that will let you sleep well enough at night that you won't muck it up. So for some people, that's going to be a very conservative portfolio. For some people, it's going to be wild and crazy. But we have to kind of divorce ourselves from this notion of, you know, uh, optimized returns because the optimization is going to look different for, for every single person. So it seems like you write a book every two years. Is that about, about right? That's been, that's been about right because I just have this need to do difficult things that pay me poorly. just do it and do it and as a clinical psychologist how do you break yourself down making those kind of decisions (laughs) working on a new book so um i'm deeply i'm deeply flawed and broken like there's no one no one goes into psychology because they're normal and if you meet a psychologist you should just run far away because they went into (laughs) it without exception to figure themselves out. That's 100% the case. So your weirdness is greater than 10%. Is that what you're alluding to? <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the weird guy at the party in the corner. I'm uh, taking the weird <laughs> way too far. It's way too far. This might be a little too soon to ask, but, but, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, in some of your work, you talk about a concept of new era thinking, where it's like we're in, in a new era and every, all the lessons that we learned before are out the window and um, new normal sort of thinking. In the COVID world in which we live now, uh, are there any new era kind of thinking things uh, that, that, that you think will look back and will be completely be flipped on their head? Yeah. I mean, we know that we know that in the short term, the market is a voting machine and in the long term, the market is a weighing machine. So I think at the, the moment that we find ourselves in right now, we are squarely in, in voting machine territory where, where sentiment reigns supreme. And, you know, I talked earlier about asset classes reflect all available information, but they reflect that information as viewed through the lens of sort of the predominant narrative of the moment. And the predominant narrative of the moment is that the Fed and the government will make everything right forever. Now, that may always be the case, and that may not always be the case. But um, I think that is uh, undeniably the lens through which we're viewing everything today. And you know, nobody knows how the future will play out, but there's no, there's no denying that people are glossing over some sort of negative fundamentals uh, because of this sort of meta narrative, uh, and it you know it's TBD whether that remains the meta narrative or whether a new one, uh, you know, a new one enters into the conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm going to give you a broad question here. We talked a little bit about your dad and and you observing him and and him being such kind of a role model and mentor with you. But talk about you know financial professionals on the whole. You know, what are you seeing that's good? What are you seeing that needs to improve? I know that's a broad question, but I'm just curious how you would respond to that. Uh, I think one of the things that I've always been frustrated with as a profession is I think our hiring 
the way that we hire financial professionals is kind of ridiculous. Like, I think we could do a much better job. And as we start to understand that the story you need to be telling is a behavioral story, I think we're going to get more and more focused on hiring people who have a lot of emotional intelligence, people who are great educators and people who are great communicators. I think those are the financial professionals that are going to win the day going forward. And I think we're going to start to rely less on things like perhaps academic pedigree or analytical skill and things like that, which are just candidly not as important as, as we perhaps thought they were or are consequently being being replaced by AI and machine learning and things like that. So uh, I think there is hopefully a, a brighter day coming with respect to how we hire and train financial advisors. I hope uh, that that story starts to change, but I'm really encouraged by the fact that I think it is. Like one of the things that's so cool about my job is when I started doing this, whatever, 12 years ago, People, I, I remember the first time I ever gave a talk on behavioral finance, someone came up to me and said, this isn't a thing. Like this isn't, <laughs> you know, this thing that you're talking about, this is not real. And I had to sort of make the case and no, I'm not making the case anymore, right? Like nobody, yeah. you know, one, one financial crisis and one coronavirus later, nobody's, you know, wondering whether or not investors are emotionally driven. Um, so I'm glad that there's some sort of fundamental agreement. I just think there's a lot of work that remains to be done to build out the infrastructure that lets advisors and clients benefit from this uh, sort of moment to moment, day to day. Yeah, I, it's uh, you're definitely getting agreement on it. You know, it's been a few years since since I did the CFA program, but behavioral finance has become a bigger and bigger and bigger part of that as well. It's a huge, huge deal. So um, I think I think you're in a, a, a very, very cutting edge field. So what we're going to do do right now again is is that we're going to bounce around a little bit, but it's almost like a lightning round. We're just going to throw a couple of quick questions on you, concepts that. You've covered over time. So comment on this. A lot of what we believe is wrong. So if you look back over history, we laugh at stuff that, that folks used to believe that we now think is wrong. So the, the example that I used in my TED Talk was it wasn't that long ago that people believed, like the, the intellectual consensus was that if women studied too much, that their reproductive organs would atrophy right? That they couldn't have children because they were too smart. And I mean, that's, you know, that's laughable. Imagine the guy who came up with that, like the first guy who said, here's what I'm going to think about. I'm going to come up. I've got an idea, right? Like we all, (laughs) we laugh about that now, but not that long ago, that was like scientific consensus. And there are things that you, you know, that the three of us believe today that our kids and their kids will laugh at. So I think it requires a lot of humility to go through the world. In, and I think the most profitable words in investing are, why, why might I be wrong? And that's nothing, that's nothing that we are programmed to deal with, right? So we've got these brains. Our brains account for like 2 to 3% of our body weight, but are 25 to 30% of our caloric expenditure and so we're always looking for ways to think less. And one of the ways that we do less thinking is just by believing that everything we already think is right, like not revisiting any of our assumptions. And uh, that's a really bullheaded and sad way to move through the world. So you have to kind of embrace 
your own uh, inherent errancy and you have to think about why you might be wrong. And it's not easy to do, but I promise you, we believe something equally dumb today. Promise you. That's such a better answer than I, than I was expecting. That, and there, there's a guy that has a financial blog that every year writes down like these are the 10 things I learned this year that I didn't know before that I, I've always looked at and thought, wow, that's really, really thoughtful and difficult to put together. Uh, I'm going to put you on the hot seat for a second. So what's something that you do that's irrational? We covered one with the book writing. So maybe you want to expand or I give a different example. Some irrational decision that you make that you know you probably shouldn't. Yeah, no, I do all kinds of dumb things. So the, um, you know, one of the reasons I have a financial advisor, right? Like I work with my, I work with my dad is because even though I've written four books on behavioral investing, uh, it doesn't mean that I do any of it right. And so one of the things that's hard to, to grasp for, for most people is that there's almost no relationship between knowing what to do and doing the right thing. And so most people think like, oh, we just need to educate people. And then when they know what to do, they'll just go execute. Okay, America started labeling food in 1993. So starting in 1993, you could see how much fat, sodium, whatever was in your food. And so ostensibly, you could make you know, perfectly rational, perfectly efficient choices with your, with your eating. And since that time, America's twice as fat and three times as morbidly obese because it doesn't matter. Like when I'm, when I'm traveling and I'm tired and I miss my family and I'm beat up and I'm walking through an airport and I get a Cinnabon instead of a salad, it's not because I was like, oh, this Cinnabon is probably good for me. It's just I didn't care, right? Like my emotions overcame me. And so that, that to me is the, the I, I do all kinds of stuff. I make all the same mistakes as anyone else with my eating, with my money, with every other sort of behavioral thing, because knowing what to do and doing the right thing have next to nothing in common. And so you have to put people in your life, people and processes in your life that'll keep you from doing the bad thing. Talk about the idea of being a, a principled contrarian. Yeah. So um, we live in a world in which, at least in the U.S. and probably the West, contrarianism is a is a is valued right like people like individuality in a way that is not the case i think in some eastern and other cultures that are more collectivist in nature and so because we already sort of value a form of contrarianism contrarianism can lose its bite right like being a rebel being different can become as lame and as uniform as being the same, right? You know, if you look at a group of punk rockers, right? Like I used to be in a punk band when I was in high school. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We dyed our hair and had mohawks and whatever, right? And so the way that I look as a kid in a punk rock band was no less a uniform. You know, me wearing a black shirt every day and having red hair was no less a uniform than the kids that were wearing Brooks Brothers and whatever every day, okay? So principled contrarianism is where you are different for a reason. It's, it's not this sort of lame, like, I'm going to, you know, give you the middle finger and be different just to be different. It's, it, it's being different for a reason 
that uh, moves society forward, helps you make money, whatever. Uh, and so that's sort of that's sort of my take on principled contrarianism because so many people think they're contrarians when what they're doing is putting on a new kind of uniform. So uh, have you released your children's book yet? And can you remind us what the, what the proposed title of your children's book is or was? Oh, this is terrible. So I have, <laughs> I, well, love I, wrote a, I wrote a children's book. It's done. Like it's, it's illustrated. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a poem called everyone you love will die. I'm a big, um, I'm a big believer in sort of existential philosophy. And I have, um, I have a pin that I wear on my suit, except when my wife is around because she thinks I'm weird. But I have a pin that I wear that says memento mori, which is this word that effectively means, like, effectively means remember you will die. So I have this skull and it says memento mori. And it's taken from something the Romans used to do. So the Roman, uh, the Roman warriors, like on their best day, they conquer something. They're parading them in a chariot around the, you know, around the Colosseum. They would put a, a commoner or a slave in the back of the chariot, and that was that person's job to whisper in their ear, memento mori. Basically, on your best day, like have your moment in the sun, but remember, this is all fleeting. Because I believe that sort of understanding how fleeting this all is, is a key to energizing life giving it its appropriate vibrancy and leading us to act with the appropriate sense of urgency. So I don't do it out of any sense of morbidity. I do it as out of a sense of like reminding me to get up and try and make every day meaningful. So I wrote this book, everyone you love will die. That was a poem I wrote. For, I wrote for my children. And so, <laughs> I know. No, psychologist kids. Listen, man, psychologist kids and preachers kids always very messed up. So I, uh, I, wrote, I wrote this uh, years ago. I wrote this poem for my children and I put it on Facebook and a friend of mine loved it and she's an illustrator and she illustrated, did illustrations for it. And I said, well, heck, now we got words and we got pictures. So like, let's make it a book. So we put it on Kickstarter. Um, Kickstarter made it their like pick of the day. It got funded in you know, 36 hours. And so we were able to print, you know, a couple hundred copies and give them out to friends and family. So we were going to do, it was going to go live. We got a published, like a legit publisher for it to give it a wider distribution this year. And then coronavirus hit and it did not seem like an appropriate time, even oh. though, even though, even though the book is ultimately hopeful, right? Like even though the book is basically saying, look, you know, we're, we're only here for a little time. So make the most of spending time with the people you love. It's not, it, it still just felt too irreverent and too pointed to release now. So it'll come out one day. It felt like the wrong time to kind of share it with the world. Cause I, I felt like the, the tendency of it to get misunderstood was pretty intense and, and, and it could have been viewed in an insensitive manner which is uh, not my, you know, not my wish. We were sitting on it for a little while, but it's a, it's a sweet book, believe it or not. And that gets to, you know, you closed one of your, your TED Talks and you were talking about goals you had, you know, you set goals and you realize, wait a minute, what are these goals? And then you came up with some other ones, including writing that, that children's book. So talk about the goals that you set, why that was problematic, and then what you changed them to. 
It was something. It was something like uh, I want to make more money, and I want. It, it was something like that. Like six pack abs and like more money or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is only audio, but we can assure the listeners that I do not have six pack abs. So that goal was not met. So um, yeah. So I, you know, I set these goals around. Uh, I think probably you know working out and making more money, and and basically it was just going back to the the, the research about how money does and doesn't buy happiness. And what, what we find is that money basically buys you the absence of sadness, um, but it doesn't buy happiness. Like it can buy you, you know, a roof over your head, food in your stomach, and, you know, a good enough neighborhood that your kid can go to a safe school, that kind of thing. But that's about it. And then it plateaus really fast. And once you have those things met, you know, it's kind of up to you. And so I changed the goals and it was to write the children's book that we just talked about. So I did that. Uh, It was to officiate a wedding, which I have since done. I got my little online, I am the reverend, the reverend doctor or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea. Is is it doctor? Is it reverend? uh, There's so many names we could call you. I feel like reverend is, I feel like in the 15 minute preacher school that I went to, I didn't really learn the difference, but I feel like reverend is something like more than what I got. I got whatever multi-denominational $20 certificate I needed to to uh, officiate the wedding of two friends who I'd introduced. So I introduced a couple of friends who ended up getting married and uh, that was exciting. And then the last goal was to do stand-up comedy, which I've not yet done, uh, which I aspire to do. But it's so hard, man. Like every, uh, I have a couple of friends who I would consider really, really funny uh, funny online, funny in conversation, and I've seen them do stand-up comedy, and I hope they're not listening because they were awful. <laughs> really, <laughs> I think it's really difficult. So I'm, I, I, that one remains undone, but I'm two for three so far. Even the good comedians will tell you you got to struggle for a real long time before you get any kind of. I think, I think Chappelle's the only one where people saw him go on stage and he was like good right away. But outside of him. You know, it takes a long time, um, but that's why it's a goal. You said you wanted to fail at stand-up comedy, right? You want to bomb was was the goal. Yeah, which which is a hilarious goal to have, by the way. Let's just take a moment to thank Dr. Daniel Crosby for coming on. You are awesome. We really, really appreciate awesome. your time. No, I appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks for having me. When my my last question, just to end on some awkwardness, is we're both in Atlanta. Can we be friends in real life? Yeah, we can be friends in real life. You live in the cooler place. You live in kind of the hipster haven. I live in the lame suburbs. But listen, I'll have my lame guard at my lame gate let you in so we can be real friends. <laughs> I like it. It's Look pretty funny that, because we, we write up, you know, we want to prepare for these interviews and we have a bunch of questions that we're, we want to make sure we have a structure to the conversation. And literally the real last question is, can we be friends? No, really, on, on our sheet right now. <laughs> Uh, so before we let you go, though, tell tell everyone because you know Daniel's work is is just a must. It's a must. You got to see the TED talks. You got to read what he's doing. Where where's the best way for our audience to find you? Yeah, so uh, read the books. The Laws of Wealth and the Behavioral Investor are where I would start. Um, TED talks. I have a lot of talks. If you just go to YouTube and Google my name, you should find some good stuff there. I have my own podcast called Standard Deviations. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby or on LinkedIn, just Daniel Crosby, PhD. Awesome. So thanks again to our guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby.
So I want to kind of summarize. We've talked about a lot today with Dr. Crosby. Let me see if I could summarize and then also give you your key takeaway. The first is check out Daniel, Dr. Daniel Crosby's works, his books, his TED Talks. They're all really good. I don't think- His podcast? His podcast as well. Good point. I don't- Standard deviations. There you go. I, I, I don't think I've really watched or consumed any of his content and not took something away. I mean, they're they're all really, really good. They're all dingers, um, yeah. His books, I list a couple of them here, The Behavioral Investor, You're Not That Great, Personal Benchmark, Laws of Wealth. Um, the next takeaway is just behavioral finance as a subject. We talked about in our intro how important that is. If you are not thinking about bringing these behavioral elements into your business, whether it's how you go about your investments, how you go about interacting with your clients, you really, really should. Um, and the science of that area is really coming around to not being academic and kind of ivory tower, but there's real world applications that are getting more and more exciting that I, if you're not incorporating them in the coming years, your com competition probably will be, and you might be left behind. Yeah, it really is the the frontier, like the cutting edge. I think there's, if I think about where academia is going with finance, you know, fintech is clearly a big one, but behavioral finance is just as big in terms of where the academic world was looking. It was interesting. He Yeah, your money and your brain. There you go. I mean, it was interesting. He was talking about how some of the things that that we know from behavioral finance and and I'll share a couple of them. Clients do 2 to 3 times better with financial financial professionals and he talked about maybe starting to tell a different story about value. It's not just that you work with me so I can get you into the hottest and best funds. It's and beat the SP. Exactly. It's about it's about appropriate decision making. It's about not letting our emotions get in the way. It's about avoiding poor decisions, things like that. I thought that was great. And how that might only come along three or four times in the life of a relationship. That's right. Right. So you, you might pay that fee every year, but you might only realize that benefit only a few times in, in a multi-decade relationship. But boys are worth it, you know? Um he talked about the idea, Kurt just mentioned a personal benchmarking. He talked about the idea of mental accounting. That's a really good one. Uh, talking about like putting things in bucket and how that can affect the way that we think about, you know, pools of investments and things like that. I thought that was that was great. I loved uh, you know, being about 10% weird. Cause I feel like I'm maybe more than 10%. I'm at least 10% weird. You so are. Um, minimum. <laughs> I love that. And I loved how he talked about the benefits of that. You know, you want to sort of not, you know, conform to your organization or your company or your culture. You don't want to niches get riches. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but being a little bit weird, being a little bit different, I think is, is Ben is beneficial. And then much of what you believe is wrong. I see a lot of people really, really confident in I what that they all the absolutely time. know. You know, if you're not yeah. questioning what you know, if you think you have all the answers, uh, you don't. And 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 your children are one day going to laugh at you or your grandchildren at what you think you know today. Yeah, and that that was just you know kind of some of the my takeaways from the episode. But let me give you your specific takeaway. It's to start incorporating some elements of behavioral finance into your business. And here's a good starting point. Reach out to us. We'll talk to you about all of Daniel's different books, and we'll get you one. Touch base with us. We'll go through them, and we're happy to send uh, our podcast listeners a copy of one of his books. So we look forward to, to hearing your feedback on that. Costanza Corner is next. Stick with us. Welcome back to The Whole Truth. We're going to close out with our Costanza Corner for this episode. And Steve, I got to ask you, are we friends? Yeah, I think so. I think so. 
See, see, I, I know. You so. think so? I love I the conviction. So. I love the conviction. Well, you made me that. think about it. I didn't, you know. Yes, I think we're friends. Definitely. Why do I keep saying I think? What is wrong so, with me? At least you're not saying I feel like. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you know what's funny is since we did, since we did, I, I'm digressing, but since we did that episode of just stop it. Now, when I listen back to the episodes, and I know that I actually do so many of the things that I rally against, <laughs> I feel a little pathetic. Continue. Sorry to to to, to derail us. So I saw a story circulating around in the last week or so about a guy that won the Powerball. He won like $22 million and he decided to split it with one of his buddies based off a handshake deal that they made 28 years ago. Did you see this story? No. Tell me about this. It's it's a couple. So it's a couple of buddies named Tom and Joe up in Wisconsin. In 1992, they shook hands and said, if either one of us wins the Powerball, yeah. we'll split it with the other person. Doesn't matter who won it. And so both guys close to retirement and rather than touring the country in their PT convertible, they said they're probably going to get a little bit of an upgraded vehicle to go do a road trip in retirement. So uh, just a cool story to, to show that friendship still matters, even though we're all on lockdown and maybe seeing our friends less than we would like, uh, but also handshake deals still matter that and they still great. have an impact on, on society. I want to let you decisions. know right now, Kurt, and I'm, I'm going to say this in front of you and the whole audience. If I win the lottery one day, I'm giving you half. Now, you should know I very rarely play the lottery. I very rarely do. But if I do. So my one in three million chances are really, really low. You know what, though? I'll tell you. You could talk about how you know the lottery, I've heard people call it an idiot tax and everything. Um, I never say that because people win it. And uh, like my mother, when she goes to the casino, she likes to play the slot machines. And I, you know, and historically, I'd be like, why are you playing slots? I mean, that's just how the, all the casinos awful make their bet. money. It's an awful, awful bet. You want to know something? That lady wins. You know, she really wins a lot. So I'm not going to judge. I know the stats are against us, Kurt, in this uh, lottery situation, but you never know. I would split that with you. And I think that is a great Costanza corner. And coming full circle, Mr. Crosby talks about the effects of gambling and winnings in one of his TED Talks. So check that out on YouTube. Excellent. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.